Today's reading is um, taken from Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. During August, we're looking at four different psalms, uh, and under the title Songs of Summer. It's great to be able to sing again. Well, these are, in fact, originally were songs. And uh, so each person who's speaking has chosen a psalm that uh, we're going to look at. And, uh, and today you've got me, and I've chosen Psalm 32. So uh, let's pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, I do pray that um, just as you, by your Holy Spirit, inspired David to write this song, this psalm that we have now to look at, that you would uh, inspire us within our hearts to, uh, to hear you speak to us this morning. Amen. Well, the psalms, uh, as you will know, have been a great source of comfort and hope and encouragement to many people down through the ages. Um, they've spoken of the psalms. Sometimes maybe it's hard to put into words what it is that, uh, that reaches them. But uh, even before I came to faith, uh, this was a book I felt I could relate to. A Temple Longman uh, said, the psalms put us in touch with our deepest emotions. Maybe it's something to do with their directness. Um, they're very direct, aren't they? they uh, like this psalm, they're really real and honest about the feelings they have, or the person has. There's an openness about the psalms. Psalm 32 has always spoken to me somehow, right from the very first line, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. But there's more to the psalms than just this emotional response. Uh, they can teach us much about the plans and purposes of God. They speak theology. Psalm 32 is, um, to those people who put things in groups, one of the penitential psalms, uh, several of them. And uh, that means that uh, the writer, the person who's speaking, is seeking God's forgiveness and mercy for the wrong they know they have done. And uh, one of the first of those uh, such psalms is Psalm 6. 
And somebody wrote this about that song. The song gives words to those who scarcely have the heart to pray and brings them within sight of victory. Having said that, this song is very upbeat. Um, you may have noticed. And C.S. Lewis wrote, The most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. And so my first point then is, David is forgiven and he is enthusiastic about it. Now, you've probably been watching some of the, the, um, the Olympics. Probably difficult to miss it, I would think. Um, but you might have noticed there's a guy called Tom Dean uh, who won the men's 200 metres freestyle in the swimming pool. And uh, he and his friend uh, Duncan Scott, he, Duncan got the, the silver. And then together they won the four by 200 metres freestyle. That's, you know, in the group, four of them. And, uh, but the significant thing was Tom Dean had, had COVID twice last year and at one point could not even walk up stairs in his own home. Hardly a good preparation for the Olympics. But uh, as a result, you could see on television his family going crazy and celebrating when he won the 200 metres. Well, David is no less enthusiastic about the fact that he has been forgiven and what he is telling us. He's been through it, of course. But now, you can imagine David singing out in praise, directing us to call upon the Lord in verse 6, to rejoice and sing in verse 11. You can feel the joy, almost, in David's experience of being forgiven, restored and set free. Hence, the joy of forgiveness. To use the term he uses in verse 7, this is a song of deliverance. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. This declaration, this exhortation then, to pray to God, is not just a theoretical idea for him, not some academic exercise. It's not something he's like come up with after thinking about stuff for a bit. It's a reaction to his own experience. He knows what it is to be forgiven. To have that weight of guilt lifted off his shoulders. So he wants to shout it from the rooftops. Maybe right there there's a lesson, a challenge for us as Christians today. So the psalm is a personal testimony. But I want us to think about what, just for a minute, that means what we can learn from it, which is my second point, what we learn. And I think there are three things. Under this heading, what can we learn? Three things. First thing is that David kept silent about his sin. He declares that he kept silent and it resulted in his suffering. We do not know whether that was a physical suffering or whether it was mental anguish. But of course, sometimes those two things are linked, aren't they? Either way, it is an account of a deep inner conflict. He's tormented by pangs of conscience, and he has a deep sense of guilt somehow. We know that even in human estrangement, that means you know, when you fall out with somebody, that can be a deep unrest within you, within your mind and within your body. All the same people, don't they, doggedly keep up that rift. 
David's symptoms, I suppose to us, might feel extreme, but the stubbornness he speaks about is all too common. But he keeps it to himself still, thrusts it into the subconscious. He's obstinate, but he's like a tree withering in a drought. We too, I think, can sense that we are not right with God through sin within ourselves. And we can be troubled and things that are not as they should be. And we can push that out of our mind. And then, of course, we live now within a society that tells us that guilt is portrayed is an imposition. We are only made to feel guilty by other people or by the circumstances we are in. And that we should throw off guilt. But that's rather easier said than done. Because at the same time, I noted that in court cases, I don't know whether you have, that often a judge, when he's summing up to somebody that has been pronounced guilty, is nearly always considering whether the person, this convicted person, has shown contrition or remorse in any way. So I guess we all know that acknowledgement of guilt is important. So David admits that he has kept silence about sin, but now he doesn't. And the second point under this heading is the need for honesty before God. That is essential to the forgiveness that David here testifies to. David says he acknowledged his sin before God, confessed it, and thereby discovered the liberation of forgiveness. But it starts, note, with us being honest about ourselves before God. Just as in the parable of the prodigal son, it's when he comes to his senses and acknowledges the situation he's in that things change. Psalm 51, David says, A broken and a contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. Now, being honest with God, well, it seems something that should be easy. But is it? Because it seems to me that we often have uh, enough trouble being honest with ourselves. Before God, though, we must be open and honest. And you will know if someone has um, in some way hurt you, has done something against you, it's far better if that person is honest with you rather than to try and conceal what they have done. So David testifies to this, that it is the way to forgiveness. And you may have noted in verse 2 that David has a little caveat about being blessed. And he says, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Again, honesty is central. Proverbs 28. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So the third thing in this section is that his sins are covered. What God does is to, for David is to cover his sin. As in verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. God does that to remove the shame, our shame at our sin, so we don't anguish over it. He covers this, but that's not to say that this is a cover-up, which seems in the news lately a very uh, topical issue. Because notice in verse 5, David says, 
Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. So this is a confession, not a cover-up. But it's interesting that he uses the same word, I did not cover. So what the psalm is saying is this, God can't cover a person's sin until that person uncovers it. But now perhaps we move to the third point. How is it that sin is covered? How it works? David was a great king, but he did some things that are very difficult to overlook, as you may know if you've read the scriptures. How is it that just by confessing he is forgiven? Well, in Romans 4, Paul argues this, that we are saved by grace through faith. We have not done anything to earn it. And he points out that this has always been the case. He references the Old Testament. And then, in this verse, he quotes this psalm as an example of that. So, verse, reading from verse 4. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So maybe I need to unpick that a bit. So if, you, if you're employed and uh, it comes to wages day, your employer pays you, but he doesn't pay it out of the goodness of his heart. He pays it because he's obliged to, because you've earned it. But then um, Paul says, but if the person has not worked, then that is a different matter. And so he says that's what it's like for us when we approach God. So we approach God, if we trust God, the one who justifies the ungodly, as he puts it, their faith is credited as righteousness, if we trust that God will forgive us. So David, so I'm continuing, verse 6 with the Romans passage. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So he's saying that in this psalm, those first two verses, and he quotes those then, are saying the same thing. So it's not just that Paul or the New Testament tell us that we have, a, we have not earned forgiveness. So too does David in the Psalms. So right here in the middle of Psalms, he is, David is saying, confirming that it is by grace that we are saved, forgiven, through faith and trust in God. David doesn't mention in a psalm anywhere that he has earned anything. But it's all the same, convinced that those who, verse 10, trust in him are surrounded by God's love. In verses 1 and 2, that they are blessed. In verse 11, he even calls them righteous. To put it all together, Paul quotes earlier on, in, he quotes Genesis 15, which says... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So then, you've got Genesis, you've got Psalms and you've got Romans are saying the same thing. God's way of relating to people has always been by faith in him, not by works. Of course, what David did not know, but we do know, is that it is through Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death 
that has made that possible. That is how God is able to square forgiveness with the grace, with perfect justice, sorry, and it is by grace. This psalm, in fact, is a testimony to the grace of God. So then now, my fourth point, where forgiveness leads. So in verse 8, the psalm suddenly switches to God speaking to David and to us through him. And that often happens in psalms, I don't know whether you noticed, you suddenly switch from the person, one person talking to you to God talking to you. It's sort of like God's right of reply, I suppose. And so he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. But then he says something which is sort of strange, really. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. What does he mean? Well, David, as we see, has been brought low and he's suffered, but he has come to his senses and turned to God, and he's experienced the joy of being forgiven. But now God takes beyond takes David beyond forgiveness to something else, to God's desire for a living relationship with us. So then forgiveness is not an end in itself. It is leading somewhere. What God wants is a better relationship than you can have, this says, with a senseless animal, like a stubborn mule. Charlotte Dujardin, I think I'm pronouncing that right, in the Olympics, in the dressage, I don't know whether you've watched any of that, and she's won a medal, and she's now become GB's most decorated female Olympian. And uh, in dressage, I don't know whether you've seen it, is the horse sort of like dances across the ground with the rider. It's really quite amazing to watch. There seems to be this amazing close relationship between the horse and the rider. But despite that very close relationship, you will notice that it's the bit and the bridle that is used. The rider has to put pressure upon the horse to actually obey. You cannot counsel a horse. God is saying, let us have a better relationship than that. I was speaking to a young mum the other day, and she was saying how um, her son... um, is doing something and she says oh, well could you stop doing that and the, the son just carries on doing it and also so she says again look look could you stop that and he carries on and so she has to raise her voice have to come over maybe and stop him doing it physically and it sort of all ends in tears and she says wouldn't that be better if he could just listen to me the first time god has his heart set on a relationship of closeness and intelligent cooperation with us, where he is the one that instructs and he guides us. He wants an honest, open, and living relationship with us. In John 15, Jesus says to his disciples that he shared with them, and now he doesn't want it to be that they are his servants. He wants them to be his friend. We often live as, as we should, only because we fear the consequences. Instead, God is looking for us to be those who obey because we want to, out of love for him. So then, David calls upon us 
to pray to God while he may be found, to be open and honest with him, to confess and receive his forgiveness. And he will be with us when the day of trouble comes. We need his friendship and love above all else. It is that what really leads to true happiness. So then we say as the psalm ends, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all of you who are upright in heart, in and through the Lord Jesus. Amen.